Welcome back to The Short Game. This is the show where we discuss short video games, the kind of games that you can complete in an evening or a weekend, but also the kind of games that dare to try things that bigger, large-budget, lengthy games just can't dare to try. Uh, I'm your host, Reagan Kelly, and of course I'm joined this week by my co-hosts, Shane Kelly. How are you doing, Shane? I am so good, let me tell you. It- What's going on in Houston, Texas for you this weekend? Oh, uh, I got a I got a bottle of fancy whiskey that just came into my life, and I think everything improved. Good to hear. And Nate, Nate Heininger, how are you doing, Nate? I'm doing well. Glad to be here. Ready to talk about some birds. Talk about some swans. Talking about birds on podcast. That's your specialty, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a thing I do. Let's yeah. do it. So, Let's how many times you've talked about swans on talking about birds? Never, never once. Well, I've done. I've talked about doves. Um, yeah. What about blue jays? Uh, blue jays. Yeah, I've talked about some cardinals. Orioles. And some, uh, Orioles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why are there so many baseball teams named after birds? I don't know. Or socks. Some questions just can't be answered. Sounds like I know more about baseball than you because they're named after socks because of the kind of socks they wore. <laughs> well, you just blew this my week mind. on the short game. We're talking about the unfinished swan. The Unfinished Swan, a game from Giant Sparrow, so yet another bird connection for our week. Um, This is a game that I had been meaning to play for ages, but it came out in a period where my PlayStation 3 was kind of collecting dust in my closet. This came out in 2002, late 2002. So this came out at a time when I wasn't really closely following what Sony and, you know, Sony-exclusive games were were coming out. but I'm really glad that they released it for the PS4 so we could check it out now. It was a game that I only found because it came out uh, as part of a... Well, it didn't come out. It was already out. But it was um, discounted as part of a, of a sale on the PSN in the week that I bought my PlayStation, my new PS4. And so I was picking up whatever was cheap. And uh, the game sounded interesting. It's uh, All I knew about it was that it was a game where you first start off in a sort of a plain blank white void throwing ink on the walls to try and figure out what's going on around you. And that was, it was a lot more than that. It was, um, it was a really unique first person game. And I knew that this game was something special because uh, my wife, Julia, is not, she will refuse to play any game that has sort of a first-person shooter mechanic. She does not like that kind of game. She prefers stuff where it's third-person or top-down or isometric or whatever have you. And she was so into this game. She actually... I watched her beat this game. I was really I was really surprised by how accessible and fun and creative and innovative this game was. Yeah, I'd never heard of this game until you guys were like, hey, we're playing this. This is fun. And so I bought the game and fired up. I watched zero trailers, had no idea what to expect. All I knew is that it was first person. And I know we're going to talk about it in a moment, but I actually didn't know what to do to start. It took me a minute before I figured out the trigger buttons were the key element. And I was just stuck in an all-white field. Actually, I didn't think the game had started for the first, like, 20 seconds. And then I, know, and then I awesome. noticed the little white, or, you know, the little, uh, I don't know, arrow or a little circle, you know, indicating where I was looking. And I started to do what you do in every video game where you don't know how it works. Press every button in a uh, order in which you figure out what they do. And I, the way I did it actually ended up being the trigger's last. And... It's like, okay. Yeah, we're going to talk about how this game plays in a little bit more detail as we go. But but to kind of give you the only what you'll see in the trailer kind of image of what this game is all about. This is a game where you're exploring a space. Um, it's told in a kind of a fairy tale or children's book narrative kind of way uh, with narration and even like storybook pages. And um, we're exploring a, a child's imagination. Um, using a bunch of really interesting mechanics, and we'll go through them all. Um, it, it's made by this company, Giant Sparrow, uh, that is kind of a first-party indie of Sony. It's really got a kind of an interesting development history. Um, the guy who is sort of the lead developer of this game, I think his name was Ian Dallas, um, 
he uh, pretty early after getting out of whatever game development school thing he went to, um, he came up with a bunch of different, yes, came up with a bunch of different uh, prototypes. And one of them was a very, very early prototype of this game. It was just showing off the mechanic of firing these ink splatters at uh, at objects in a world where there's no shading, there's only three three dimensional a three dimensional world, but completely white with no visual distinction between foreground and background or objects in background. You can't see anything at all until you paint it in by throwing gobs of paint at it. Um, so the, the 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 arrangement between Giant Sparrow and uh, and Sony is kind of interesting, and I can see where it's a big plus for them because they're a brand new indie developer as of when they were coming out with this game, but also seemingly a little restrictive. Um, basically, that game company, the company that uh, that made Journey, um, moved out of their office space that Sony was paying for, and Giant Sparrow moved in, um, and uh, they Sony pays for the office space. And Sony has right of first refusal on all of their projects. So it's kind of an incubator kind of thing where Sony is basically mentoring this company, uh, Giant Sparrow, through their first three projects. And this is only their first project. And their second project hasn't even come out yet years later. So I really don't know where that stands. Yeah, so it's kind of like they're living in Sony's basement, like coming upstairs every few hours and like rummaging through the fridge. Yeah, and uh, and you know they'll ask Sony, hey, how are we doing? Any deadlines that we need to meet or whatever? And Sony's like, it'd be real nice if you could move off the couch and make a game every now and then. And they've made one game since they started their arrangement with Sony in 2009. Is so, that this game? Yes, this game. That's it. That's it. That's all they've come out with since 2009. They're still working on their second game. And I don't remember the details on that. Shane, do you remember what their second game that they're working on is called? What Remains of Edith Finch. It's sort of a collection of short stories about a family that has some sort of curse on them. And that's all I know about it. There's a trailer out, and that trailer's been out for a little while. Uh, I don't think we have that many details about this game. Well, if you, if you, um, you know, never put anything out, then you never disappoint. And then never, you never get kicked out of the Sony offices. That sounds great. How do I get in on that? Yeah, it's totally a rad arrangement. So um, I, I'll have a link in the show notes to the original tech demo uh, that got this game started. Um, Ian Dallas, I think we said his name was, uh, took the tech demo to the Sense of Wonder Night, which is a part of the Tokyo Game Show. Um, and that was in 2009. He showed it off. Afterwards, Sony approached him. They got started with this arrangement. And uh, a few years later, this game was published in October of 2012 on the PS3. It's since been released on the Vita and also on the PS4. And I think the PS4 version is probably the definitive one because this game actually, even though it's a little bit lo-fi in some ways, it's really a technically and visually stunning game. And I think it probably would help to play it on that platform. So the game starts with a little bit of a storybook story about the main character, um, whose name is... Monroe. Monroe. Monroe, thank you. Monroe. Uh, so it starts telling you that Monroe is a little boy, and it shows very, uh, very storybooky illustration of Monroe, and that uh, his mother died, and when she died, she was an artist, and when she died, she left him uh, a bunch of paintings all of them unfinished because Monroe's mother would never finish a painting. She always left them unfinished. And he was only allowed to take one of them with him to the orphanage. This already started really kind of mellow Kind sad. of a bummer, man. Yeah. And uh, the only painting that he took with him, the only memory he has of his dead mother. And his mother's silver paintbrush. Oh, yes, his mother's silver paintbrush and an unfinished portrait of a swan. That swan is missing that black band around its neck. It's sort of just got a gap in between the head and the neck. Um, so one night, Monroe uh, notices that the swan has gotten up out of the painting and wandered away into a sort of a weird fantasy world. And we're playing as Monroe chasing after the swan. Um, the swan's kind of constantly eluding us as we're playing our way through the game uh, and exploring this world that 
you can kind of assume is Monroe's inner fantasy life or is just sort of a, a fantasy world of the world within the portrait or the paintings. Um, and we start with a completely white blank wall that we're staring at. And all we have on screen, apart from that white blank emptiness, is a little, little reticle like you'd have in a first person shooter to kind of indicate where your aim is. Now reticle. That's yeah. the word I was looking for earlier. Hmm. Crosshair. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, but it's not a crosshair because it's not a little cross. It's like a reticle. It's a it's a circle. It's a little little tiny thingy. And so it gives you the hint, hey, this is probably first person. Because if you've played other first person games, uh, that's kind of going to clue you in that you're aiming there. But moving your sticks around does absolutely nothing until you shoot. And when you do shoot, suddenly you're shooting a little ball, a little sphere of paint that pops out of your, I don't know, brush. And uh, splats Nose? against the ground or f- wall or whatever. Wherever you're looking. Yeah. Whatever's in front of you. Mm-hmm. Could be a tree. Yeah. Be a f- weird creature. Yeah. <laughs> there were some interesting creatures in this. And that's like the really amazing thing about this first chapter of the game. The game's broken up into four chapters, if you count the last part, which is kind of not really a chapter. So three main chapters. And... Um, The first chapter is all centered around exploring this completely blank white void by painting it with black paint. And it's all 100% white or 100% black. There's no gradients, there's no lighting effects, there's nothing but white and black. And so it gives you the effect of kind of looking at like a block print. Yeah, but you get this incredible sort of splatter effect where, you know, you're splashing this paint around and, you know, you're throwing the paint directly out from where you stand so it's splashing across things and you know as you splash something it splashes around it to the things behind it and you begin to be able to see this sort of three-dimensional world around you that is not a shockingly kind of unconventional world to see you know you're surrounded by things like a little wooden footbridge or You're on a little bench or a path, but you can't tell what anything is until you hit it with the paint, which is really neat. It's just this beautiful moment. Like right at the beginning of the game is just so unique, hitting everything, splashing paint everywhere, just covering everything in this ink. Yeah, it's super satisfying to do. You almost don't want to paint it too much, though, because you need to keep the kind of perspective you need the black and white balance to actually because you can go the other way you could paint everything entirely black and then you're still you're just as lost as when everything was entirely white so you kind of paint your way through revealing what's in front of you and you're kind of on rails like there's really only one true direction you can go but there still allows for some exploration along the path that you're meant to go yeah this is what i think was the the smartest thing about this game and this game really shows you its best stuff right in the first 15 20 minutes um this mechanic of painting the world it gives you this kind of it combines your exploration with the sort of like discovery and even makes you feel sort of like you're creating this world around you because you're the way you're painting everything in it it really makes you feel like you're both exploring and creating the world and it really adds to this sense of wonderment and like sort of discovery it's this part of the game is an absolute aesthetic and technical masterpiece like This game is worth playing for its first 15 minutes alone. It's an absolute work of of art. (laughs) There's a a scene or a a spot in this game, too. So I don't generally get... uh scared in games but i had a crazy jump scare in this game because here i am painting along i'm kind of along a uh uh, along the edge of a lake and i throw a paint blob and bam frog (laughs) the frog like the way uh glasses by the way yeah the way it had lined up is that i must have been running my character into the frog and then when i hit through the paint my entire screen was this monster frog (laughs) it's just like ribbit and then jumps into the lake i was like i like almost threw my controller (laughs) (laughs) and it's really a kindly looking frog well yeah it's just like i had been painting like oh hey that's a nice bush oh these are some cute rocks uh oh wow the blobs float in the water for a moment frog (laughs) 
And you know, they do some amazingly smart things in this level. Like you're throwing paint around. And so you start off in a sort of a courtyard surrounded by walls, high walls, Mm -hmm. where you can splash around and really make a mess and, and, and tell that you're in a very simple area. And then as you, as you move a little forward, you get into this area that's bounded on all sides by like bamboo forests Mm -hmm. where there's a lot of depth you know, to the background and you can splash paint everywhere and it continues to reveal more and more depth and more and more area around you. And you get a sense of like where you really are. And you also start getting a sense of height because you can fire your paintballs really high up and see that the bamboo's really tall, but there is stuff above the bamboo. Um, yes, and Nate mentioned the water where the, the little paintballs sink into the water. But, um, and then you start finding your way across things like little little wooden bridges that are uh, made of, you know, where the water around you is going to just sort of the paintballs are going to sink and dissipate into the water, but the bridge itself that you're following, you're going to be able to splash that with paint. One of the um, nicer moments in this too, I thought, was that once you've made your way across that bridge you were talking about, you kind of enter into a broken down castle, maybe, or at least a... A, a real nice regal looking but kind of being torn down or falling apart building yeah and and you can kind of work your way to the top and look out the window back the way you came and at this point you are way higher than you were when you started the game and you can actually kind of look back and down on everything that you painted and you can kind of see the path that you walked your way from the beginning all the way to where you were and it, it's really really nice looking that is that was the first like like huge wow that's really gorgeous moment in the game yeah it, it goes from this scale of i can barely see an inch in front of my face because everything that i see i have to paint myself to having a, a, a you know a vista you see everything that you just painted over the last 20 minutes and i, I thought the that entire segment of the game was really really gorgeous and and the, and the the castle that we're coming up to is a big contrast from everything that you saw before so you uh, you're painting in bamboo and a lake and a shore and a frog and then suddenly you're coming to this very ornate looking castle with big staircases and um, it's a big discovery to paint that stuff in you know you you're painting you know inches in front of your face until finally suddenly wow there's like a gorgeous enormous staircase here it's a triumph of exploration in a game. And a lot of times when I talk about exploration in a game, it's it's where you're kind of traveling huge distances or you're finding hidden secrets. But in this game, it's it's the exploration can be right in front of your face. Yeah. It's a thousand little, oh, wow, look at that. Oh, oh, yeah. look at that. Oh, wow. Uh, we... We haven't mentioned yet, too, there, there is a little bit of color in this first world. And it kind of acts as guideposts mm-hmm. to give you yes. A, yes, kind, good of, point. kind of an idea of where you're going. There's, there's gold, or at least very bright yellow. Um, the swan that you're following will leave sets of swan footprints that will be bright yellow and can usually be seen from pretty far away. But also there'll be random things like uh, you enter into a statue garden and all the statues have a little gold element or like the handle on a door will be gold. It kind of works as a way of kind of guideposting you forward. So maybe you're in a big empty white courtyard and you can't really see where you are and you can't really see the doors. And that could be frustrating because then you'd have to spend a lot of time hunting for the door out. But no, just off in one corner, you can barely see a little glint of gold. And you know, I need to go that direction. And by following those little tiny hints of color, um, you really kind of get guideposted through the, through the emptiness. Yeah, there's a lot of little situations like that through the entirety of the game. And some of them are really where... funny. Like there's a, there's a moment where you're exploring the sculpture garden and... Um, you think you must see the swan because there's a pair of feet and you throw a paintball and you realize actually it's a sculpture of a chicken with gold feet and not the actual swan. Yeah, we should actually talk about the humor in this game for a minute. It's told in a, everything's very storybook-like, but some of the storybook pages, as you go throughout the game, you'll actually unveil new pages of the story, can be pretty funny. We're, we're going to talk through the game a little bit as we go, um, but I am going to have us take a spoiler break here in just a moment before we start talking about anything in Acts 2 or 3. Um, 
there's some changes in the play mechanic. So I'll say that the painting the environment mechanic lasts us through most of, but not the entirety of the first act. By the end of the first act, we start getting hints of things like shading, shadows, slight hints of color in the environment. Yeah, uh, and they call, they tie that back to the story, which is the story of the king. Mm-hmm. Um, and they say that the, the inhabitants of the king's kingdom have grown upset and they've complained to him about the fact that they can't find their way to get anywhere because everything is white. So the king says, okay, I'm past that now. I'm going to start painting in shadows. I love the character of the king because he's kind of a stand-in for the game designer, but he's also kind of just this archetypical artist character. Um, you know, the, the king has his magical paintbrush with which he can create the world around him, but he has such high regard for himself and for his art that he does these bizarre things, like, for example, leaving his entire kingdom all white and, you know, deciding that there was no color good enough for his gardens and his statues, or, you know, later some other equally bizarre and self-aggrandizing things that we'll talk about. And it kind of tells the story of this artist's arc from being a kind of a self-involved person with, you know, the the game developer when he was talking about the early stages of the King's plot, um, talked about it kind of as his Salvador Dali experience where he's, you know, being um, more experimental and trying really strange things through to moments later in the game where you can see the King thinking about his own mortality and doing slightly more conventional art in, in so much as it can be conventional in this fantasy world. Um, I don't know. I thought that the king was a absolutely fascinating character, even though we only hear about him through these storybook pages. I agree, and I love those storybook pages. It's kind of a, a sort of a window into Monroe's world. You're taking on the part of Monroe, but Monroe's story is being told by this really kindly-sounding woman's voice. And that was one of the most effective things to me about the game. The narration that sort of told the story and you're always finding these new you see like off in the distance a letter hanging in midair surrounded by nothing and you approach it and you splatter it with paint and you've unlocked more story and the story is simple and it's childlike and it's fun and it's funny before we take our spoiler break any last thoughts i mean i'd say that this game is extremely accessible uh, it's got a childlike wonder to it, and it's got you know very few fail states. It keeps you almost always you're safe and you're free to explore your world, and there's very little that you can do wrong in this game. So it's mostly just about experiencing it and exploring it. Um, there are some collectibles that you can, if you're really aggressive about playing through the game, you know, hardcore and experiencing everything, you can try to find all of the balloons in the game. I didn't really completely bother, but by doing that, you unlock some interesting little extras. There are definitely some extras to be unlocked with those balloons. I, I managed to unlock the ability to pause time for the, for the little, that's super fun, especially when you go back and play some of the early levels with it where you can splatter all the walls at once by pausing time and firing off as many of the little paint splots as you possibly can, then unpause it and everything flies out. It also gives you a little, if you can eventually unlock the ability to erase your paint, which I found kind of fun to do when I was just experimenting. Um, but basically, uh, the game is there to let you play through the story and experience it without being blocked by skill barriers. Um, and if you want to take the time to explore more deeply and find all of these balloons, then you can. Uh, but if not, you're really not missing that much of the core game experience. Um, we're going to have our spoiler break, and afterwards we're going to be talking about chapters two and three in some more detail. There's some new game mechanics there that appear that we want to leave as a surprise. Uh, and also uh, we'll talk a little bit about the plot and its conclusion. Um, so catch us after the spoiler break. Here it is, your spoiler break. What did you guys think of chapters two and three? Um Chapter two was cool. I thought it went a little long, but I did like some of the uh, some of the uses of the vines. And chapter three, I liked almost as much as I liked chapter one. I agree. I think chapter two is the weaker of the three. So let's talk through it. Um, 
Chapter three, we come to the king's second castle, a large chapter city. Two. Excuse me. That's right. Yeah. Chapter two, we come to a king, the king's second city, a, a large castle surrounded by a labyrinth. And um, we get some really interesting sort of vistas there. Um, we, you know, see it from afar and then we're inside it and um, we see that the city is empty and is sort of falling apart. Um, and it's falling apart because it's infested with a tangly vine. Also, at this point, for some reason, we no longer have any paint and our little gun or whatever it is just throws balls of water. Yes, in the first chapter, you paint walls. In the second chapter, you water plants. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, basically, and I, I spent a long time trying to figure out if there was anything that I could do with the water at the beginning trying to clean stuff, trying to do anything with it. And you don't to start, you actually use it to activate a bunch of different levers. They kind of look like big red paddles and you'll hit them and it makes them spin and they'll put down a drawbridge or something like that. Yeah. Initially I was a little disappointed because I was having so much fun with the initial mechanic of, of painting that when suddenly that paint gun got taken away and I was painting, you know, just shooting water, which just dries up when you shoot it. Um, I was a little disappointed. It did kind of work for me once I figured out about the plant mechanic, like watering the plants to get them to grow in the shape and size and direction that you want. But I don't know. It just didn't do quite as much for me as the first act. Yeah, and I had a... There's, they only did this a couple times, but there were a few moments where they would drop you into the similar... It's all white, and you have to use the water to kind of color the walls so you can see where you're going. But I found the blue of the water to be... A, a color close enough to those like super bright white that I had a hard time like making my way through that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it I, dries up very quickly. And it dries up. So I got lost just like running in an all white room, having zero frame of reference only a couple times. But at that point it didn't feel like that was necessarily intended, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it felt, and yeah, I felt, you'll find yourself in these situations where it's like the beginning of the game, where you're splattering the walls to try and find your way around. But now in this situation, you're you're splattering the walls with water that dries in a matter of seconds, and it's drawing in these vines. But uh, you're it just sort of ups to the ante. You have to really have a good sense of spatial reasoning around you, and 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 lead these vines in the direction that you want to go. Mm -hmm. What, well, I think this chapter kind of isn't as strong as the first in terms of the aesthetics and the, um, uh, and the game mechanic of, of painting. It's just, it doesn't feel as exciting or as, you know, revelatory or whatever. Um, it, it does expand the story. So the story of the game starts getting a little less mysterious here. We hear a lot more of the story about the king and what he was doing building this town. Um, we get introduced to the world's laziest giant. And it's his day that's, off. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite joke. Not oh, only yeah. is he the world's laziest giant, but it's also his day off. So there's no <laughs> way he's helping you. Yeah, and he's just lying there. I kind of expected him to do something. He never did. No, just sort of he just out. lays there. And um, our goal throughout this whole segment is to reach this airship. And you know what? They said that that not only was he the world's laziest giant, but they said that he sometimes worried that the people in the city would come back and ask them to do things like help them or put out their fires, but they never did. So he was the world's happiest giant as well. <laughs> that was awesome. And so our goal through most of this is to climb to the top of a tall tower at the center of this city and to get on a flying airship that you can see there from basically anywhere in the game. Um, and uh, that's a kind of a good goal like you know it's visible from the very beginning and we're constantly working towards it um but it was really cool um i don't know this this whole segment though like it works but it never felt like you were discovering things the way that you were in the first chapter because you can see in front of your face i don't know if we really mentioned it here but this area while it's still mostly white there's color, there's shadows, there's a light sort of blue tinge to a lot of stuff. Um, there's, you know, gray objects. So uh, it still feels a little bit monotone, but we we can see. Yes, it's a limited palette, but it's uh, it's more of a more of a familiar experience of, of walking around a virtual world. Yeah, it, it, and so like the you know the major mechanic is that 
there's this green ivy that we grow using the water and our character Monroe can climb on this ivy. Yeah. And so we'll use it to spread up over walls. Uh, you can actually kind of like hang from it. You can really go traverse the entire city using it. The hanging and climbing mechanic could have been a little better because it really felt a bit like like climbing a ladder in Doom. Yeah, exactly. Because you can't see your hands or anything like that, and there's no um, there's no bobbing up and down like your normal head does when you like walk or go up and down uh, stairs and things like that. You just kind of like stick to it and glide up the ivy mm-hmm, or glide true. left and right. You can't fall off. Yeah, yeah. Even if you're barely like clipping well, the edge of the vine. Some some of that is. I think it is designed to be extremely accessible. And if, if they made it so that, like, oh, I let go of the trigger button, so I'm going to drop into the shark tank to my death, yeah, that would have been a bummer. I don't necessarily think it's uh, it's bad, but it just it felt a little clunky. Or I guess not modern, if that's a better yeah. way to look at it. Um, but I thought there were some really cool parts with this figuring out which vines you had to creep the right way to to get up and over the wall and then uh, which lever to hit to spin the thing around to creep the creep the vine onto it and, and, and I will say that the it. animation of the growing vines was really really good I mean they yeah. that was something that was like this game has a lot of little technical marvels in it the painting mechanic the fact that that paint splats in a convincing way sticks forever and, you know, you really, it looks realistic. Um, that was a technical marvel. And the same with the, with the growing vines. You could have them grow almost any which way, and they grew in a convincing, sort of organic-looking, spirally kind of way. So it really, yeah. it, it was a pretty technically impressive mechanic. It wasn't my favorite thing, but it was awesome. And they make a nice little, uh, they make a nice little tinkling noise as they grow. This is thematically where the game starts kind of getting a little deeper um, because, you know, in the first act, we're seeing the king's early work, you know, his uh, his pompous insistence that the world stay white because no color is good enough for his kingdom and that, you know, he he's only painting in shadows at the insistence of his people. Um, it's his, you know, it's his early period. But here we start getting the sense that the king has a sense of mortality. You know, the the vines are creeping in and destroying his city, and this distresses him because he thought his works would stand forever. And now that he's seeing that they're crumbling because of this vine, um, you know, he starts freaking out a little bit. And it's it's where we start getting a little bit more of the themes of the uh, of the story. This was nice. Like I, I definitely was not. There was I never felt like only in those parts where I felt like just lost because of the white on the blue. Uh, I enjoyed this chapter, but it was only going into chapter three and how much I enjoyed chapter three and how much I didn't enjoy or and how much I enjoyed the first chapter made me look back and say, you know, probably the second one was the the least good of the three. Yeah. Not to say that it's bad. Yeah. It's still interesting, but it it gave me the feeling at, at some points here, like this game, I worried at this point that the game was starting to feel like a series of good tech demos that lacked cohesion because it was so different from and frankly lesser than the first chapter that I thought, oh no, you know, they've lost the plot. When are they going to bring back the paint? Like it it just didn't work for me the way the first chapter did. That yeah. said, things really turned around in chapter three. I wouldn't say it's quite as, as impressive as those first few minutes of the game, but... Um, some really cool stuff happens in the third chapter. So in this chapter, we enter nighttime. So instead of all white everywhere, it's virtually pitch black, except for a really nice starry sky. And it's kind of fading on me the the story element that makes it go nighttime. It's because the king has ran away, right? We're yeah. Still kinda... We're still sort of following the king's path. And there's a sort of an overall narrative that the king left the big city to go and he was worried about his mortality so he wants to build a monument to himself something that will last forever yeah. and, and so moving towards it in the distance there's a giant statue of the king with glowing eyes off in the distance and we're kind of going through this dark swampy area to get to that giant statue um, which is pretty cool yeah it's it's really dark obviously like complete pitch black to the point where you can't see a thing 
and there's a few little trees with glowing fruit hanging from them. And this is the first place we get any actual danger in the game. There are areas between these glowing fruits where spiders live. And uh, if you aren't in the lighted areas, you know, if, you, if you wander off into the dark too far, you will get eaten. You're likely to be eaten by a Gru. <laughs> Which gets you like teleported back to one of these lighted areas. Yeah, and here's jump scare number two. So I'm playing, and I'm trying to keep the volume down on my TV because uh, Molly's asleep in the other room. But I did not turn down the volume on my PS4 controller. Don't Oops. really know how to do that or haven't bothered. Um, I'm assuming it's in system preferences somewhere, but I just had not bothered to do that because most games actually don't really utilize the fact that there is a speaker inside of the controller. And when you get you get slashed, it makes a really loud like screeching noise. And <laughs> since I was yeah, I was playing in a really quiet environment. That also made me kind of like almost drop my controller. So this childlike game, based off of a fairy tale and exploration, made me jump twice, which is more so than virtually any other game. So. Oh, more than twice for me. I, there was a there's a moment where a big fish monster sort of swims up to you oh, yeah. and I was like, oh shit! The sea monster, which shows up twice, really was intriguing and that was one of my biggest disappointments in the game actually because it shows you this enormous sea monster in Act 1 and it's just barely on screen for a moment and then it's gone. And then as you're entering the city in Act 2, you see the gigantic sea monster again and then that's it. You never see the sea monster again. There's no encounter with the sea monster. It doesn't have any plot significance. It's never mentioned in the narrative. It's just, it's just you awesome. see it twice. It looks awesome, but I wish that it had been um, that I wish that that element had been carried through more. You wanted yeah. to fight the sea monster. Uh, you know. uh, so, yeah, there's actually a really good opportunity for a sea monster near the end of the game. Uh, water is a huge element. You would think they would bring the sea monster back. Yeah, you really would. But um so, so we have these glowing fruits, and basically you, when you go up to the fruit, you can hit it with your paint blob. You're now shooting the black paint again, and it'll make them glow a little bit bigger, and the spiders won't go into the dark. And you move from little patch of light, uh, move forward from little patches of light mm -hmm. until you reach what I guess is like a, a glowing ball. Yeah, and then you have to kind of scoot the ball along. Yeah, and if you you have to stay within the the range of light emitting from the ball. Yeah, and it's for the most part pretty easy, but sometimes it really gets going, and you really have to. You can't run in this game. Um, but that was one of my biggest frustrations. In the I game, know is you only have one walking speed, and it's not that fast. Yeah, I wish that every single game where I'm controlling a character, the ability to jump and the ability to run would be just. In everything, like even in life is strange. I wish I could jump, just because it feels like I should be able to jump. Even in the real world, I wish I could run faster and jump. Well, I know you I can do that. Yeah, um, and so you follow this little white or this little like purple glowing ball, mm -hmm. and that was pretty cool. But yeah, you're right. It was it was pretty simple. It wasn't really particularly difficult, and I felt like I've seen that in other games. But the next thing that we came to was what I thought was particularly interesting. You come upon an old, abandoned, sort of disused, falling apart house in the middle of this wood before you get to the gigantic statue of the king. And um, you can't quite get up into the house, but you do see that next to the house is a blueprint for the house that you can jump into and suddenly you're in an area around that same exact house, but in a bright blueprint style illustration of the house. And once you're inside the blueprint, you can actually build the house or build onto the house by drawing in cubes with your gun. And this is something I'd never seen before in a, in a first-person game. Um, you kind of shoot one point, and it puts a little number one wherever your you know, ball lands. And then you shoot a second point, and it creates a square between those two points. And then you shoot a third point, and it creates a cube. Kind of reminded me almost of Minecraft. Yeah, it was a little Minecraft-like. Except you were actually kind of just drawing in these cubes or, or rectangles of any kind. Yeah, and you have to make steps to get up to different heights. And they give you kind of an outline. Like, what'll happen is before you jump into the blueprint, 
there's a doorway that you can't quite get through, but it has a yellow outline for which looks like steps. And so once you jump into the blueprint, you actually create those steps in the blueprint, and there's an open window in the blueprint that jumps you back out into the real world, and those steps are now there. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty cool mechanic. Yeah, and you're kind of climbing around through this house that's falling apart, and every now and then having to jump into a blueprint to draw back in parts of the house that are missing and then jump back. And story-wise, this is another interesting part of the game because we start hearing about the king having fled his creation, his you know his gigantic city. He decides to build a small house and just work on his painting and pottery skills all by himself. Um, but he paints a woman for himself, a perfect copy of him, but a female, and uh, brings her to life. Because we all know that's what we're into. I know that's what I'm into. Identical copy of myself, only female. Mm-hmm. You guys were so close. Yeah, <laughs> we were. If only Shane. Actually, that would have been gross. Um, yuck. Uh, 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 sorry. It just freaked me out a little bit. Um, yeah. So yeah, the king, the king creates this woman for him to love. The only woman he could love, an identical copy of him. Um, and she... Um, She's also an artist and starts painting, and uh, that's clearly Monroe's mother. Oh, he gave her the silver paintbrush. Oh, yeah. yeah, And and it becomes really obvious at this point that the king is Monroe's mother and the queen is Monroe's father. Wait. Wait. Stop that. Reverse it. That's right. The queen is the mother and the king is the father, not the other way around. Or or whatever. We're, We're not making any judgments. They're the same person, I guess, so that's pretty weird. I, I believe also, and maybe you guys can uh, fill this in for me, they kind of make, it, it kind of seems as if the, the wife is also into painting, and she's the one who's making those the, the monsters. She's doing some painting of her own, and she paints the creatures that inhabit the world. I hadn't noticed that, but that makes sense. And yeah, it, 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 this is where we start kind of tying this story of the king back to the story of Monroe, the little boy. We kind of know now why he's exploring this world. This is where I actually thought it started kind of tying its theme together a little bit better. Um, you know, it, it, you get the sense that Monroe is, this is this whole story, this whole fairy tale story is Monroe's way to make sense of his life where he's lost both of his parents. Um, I I wouldn't say that it worked perfectly for me. Like I didn't think that this was a particularly moving story, but I don't know. It was at least pretty good. Yeah. It's kind of like, uh, what's, um, what's the Paul Prospero game? Uh, Oh, uh, uh, Ethan Carter, Ethan Carter, where it's another child's way of coping with, you know, a traumatic event, even though with Ethan Carter, we know it's it's a little different. Spoilers. Yeah. Well, yeah. we're post-spoiler break. Go back and listen to that episode. But yeah, yeah I, I could have done without well, it Well, go back and, and play that game and then go back and listen yeah. to that episode. Yeah. Uh, it, it works, but I don't know. So did they finish the swan? No. The swan remains unfinished. No, actually, wait. Did they finish it? Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you work your way through bef- before you finally make it to the giant monument of the king. And it's actually um, like walled off with electric fences and electric ladders. And you kind of make your way up and you disengage the electric fences. But by doing so, you start the entire world flooding. And it, it actually st- starts a little, uh, I don't know, chase sequence where yeah. you're trying to out, outrun the water and climb all the way to the top of the King's Monument. And it was, I thought it was a pretty cool moment. It was, it was fun. The only, yeah, it was the only time in the game where uh, time is of the essence and it's a very pretty part. Everything's really well lit. It's, well, I mean, it's dark, but there's really cool shadows and it's like, you never really have a hard time telling where to go, but it all looks really nice. And you make your way to the top, and when you get in there, it's a really, really nice room with the king himself dozing on a chair in front of a fireplace with a pet hippopotamus. We've seen the hippo a few times throughout the game. Apparently it can talk, which is cool. In a really it's deep, funny voice. Pretty awesome. And I, I mean, 
this is revealing a little bit about myself personally, but I'm obsessed with hippopotamuses. So I was really excited every time so, I found a hippopotamus so, so, in this game. So, yeah, you're a real big fan of this movie. Yes. <laughs> the, the, the king, by the way, is voiced by Terry Gilliam, which I thought was interesting. Um, and I didn't recognize his voice until uh, until he, his name appeared in the credits. But um, the king uh, kind of narrates his life story back to you. So you've kind of been going through the king's life story, exploring it. But then the king kind of takes you back through it in narrative and, and tells you his side of, of his life story and uh, sort of acknowledges Monroe as his son, kind of vaguely. And um, Yeah, you actually get to go back through a lot of the places you already explored, but in a really, really quick way. Yeah, what I really loved about the conclusion of the game was the way they incorporated the credits into the rest, in, into the play. You know, you're hearing the king narrate, and one of the things he said at one point was, and then the credits started. And as you're playing through these areas that you saw previously in the game, you see credits appearing floating up on, out of walls or, you know, on the water or floating in the air. Um, so the credits are really incorporated into the game as a playable part and, uh, and still a story part because while the credits are going on, the king is sort of telling you the, the conclusion of Monroe's story. And Monroe makes it home and back to bed. And I think he finishes his mother's painting. And happy ending, I guess, except he's still an orphan. <laughs> well, yeah, he's not bringing his parents back from the grave. I you can't guess. paint them back. No. But maybe he got a little bit of closure. Yeah. Or maybe he's just gone one step deeper into his own mind, which will not end well. Or, yeah, he, he might just have gone completely irreversibly insane, and that's really the, what the story is all about. Yeah. How beautiful. So I, I know I really respect this game for its aesthetics, and I really respect it for some of the mechanics that they introduce, uh, particularly right up at the start and some of the later mechanics. Um, I think the game is a really interesting game, totally worth playing. I don't know if I think it would have borne being a larger game. I would have played twice as much of the first act. I would have done without the second act. I would have played twice as much as the third act, but... I don't know. Well, I would have done 3.5 times as much as the first act and 1.8 times as much as the second. Uh, no, listen, I, I, the reason I wanted us to play this game was because this game is, to me, the epitome of the short game. Yeah. It's a game where things are being tried that are different from what you'd see in a normal game. By the time they broke away from that first area of pure white splattered with black paint i was ready for them to do that i couldn't i i couldn't imagine that they were going to do the whole game that way it would have been just like stumbling around in the dark so the game did its best to present me with as much originality as it could and it did it was some things that i've never seen before and some things that i've never felt before in a game and i was really happy with the entire result I do agree with you, yeah. It, it, it sort of feels like a series of fascinating little tech demos, you know, innovative new ways to present a first-person game strung together with a story that works pretty well, but it's really not about that. This is a game about showing off some really innovative little pieces of game design, um, and for that, it's totally worth it. I mean, this game really impressed me with many times with innovative things that I had not seen in any other game. It does have some things that hold it back. I, I think that its themes weren't fully explored, really. I mean, you know, you've got the story of a of a kid dealing with his his loss of his parents that's only partially kind of dipped into. Um, the thing, like I said earlier, with the sea monster, like there's a lot of other little loose ends like that. But it's not really about that. It's really just about trying these fascinating little mechanics in a game that's only going to take you, what did, what did it take you guys? Maybe five hours at the very most to finish the entire thing? Probably less than three. At yeah, the about most. That. I think I did it in two sittings. Yeah. I don't normally sit for more than two hours, really. One of the wonderful things about this game was that I actually spent most of the time playing it watching my wife Julia play it. And she is not a lover of first-person shooters. This is the first game that I've actually watched 
where she played and picked up on her own a first-person action game. And that was something something unique about that. Yeah. It's very accessible. It's very mellow. And it has so many little moments of discovery and of, wow, that's amazing, that, like, you definitely need to check it out. Um, it's available for the PlayStation 3, the PlayStation 4, and the PlayStation Vita. It's cross by between the Vita and the PS4 if you happen to have both. I bought it new on the PS4 for 15. I think I also paid 15. And at that price, I think it is a it is a totally fair buy because it is a really fascinating game. So all in all, I'd say we all definitely recommend giving this game a shot. I think we've pretty much covered as much as we can without uh without i guess spoiling everything entirely there's definitely some stuff we didn't have a chance to talk about but i think this is a good point to wrap up so please uh follow us or if you want to follow the show or learn a little bit more about it or see what episodes might be coming up or check out some of our previous episodes you can check shortgame.net at the shortgame.net you can follow the show on twitter at underscore shortgame and you can follow me on Twitter at NateSTL. How about you, Shane? Where can people follow you? You can follow me at 8BitShane. Awesome. And Reagan, where can people follow you? I'm on Twitter at ReaganK. That's R-A-Y-G-A-N-K. I'd also like to say that the best way to support the show, once again, is to review us on iTunes. If you search for us on the iTunes Music Store with a short game, or you can fi- follow a link in the show notes or from our website, uh, leaving us a positive review on iTunes, or even a negative review if you thought maybe you want to be a mean jerk, um, really helps us out. It helps the show get visibility, and, uh, and we really appreciate it. You know what? Even a negative review, I'll be pleased just to just to have the attention. <laughs> So thank you, everybody, for listening this week, and uh, we'll see you next week on The Short Game.